Hello and welcome to the IGH podcast. Acute encephalitis describes a rapidly developing inflammation of the brain and, as you can imagine, is a neurological emergency. Not only is it a life-threatening disease with a mortality rate of up to 15%, it also presents a unique diagnostic challenge for doctors. Patients presenting to the emergency room with common symptoms of encephalitis, such as fever, confusion or seizures, could have any number of other conditions which mimic these symptoms. With roughly 6,000 cases per year, encephalitis is relatively rare compared to, say, drug or alcohol misuse, which can present in a similar way. As a result, even once encephalitis is diagnosed, there is a further complication. Inflammation can be caused by an external factor. In the case of encephalitis, this is usually a virus but it can also be caused by autoimmune disease in which the body develops an immune reaction against its own proteins. In cases of autoimmune disease, the aim of treatment would be to suppress the immune system and prevent it from causing further damage. But if a virus is causing the encephalitis, such a treatment would remove the body's own defense mechanisms and worsen the patient's condition. So therein lies the dilemma for a doctor treating a case of encephalitis. They are presented with a condition of two possible causes with opposite treatments. This dilemma would be easily resolved with a reliable diagnostic test that could differentiate between viral and autoimmune encephalitis. However, the cause of 37 to 62% of encephalitis cases is not identified, even after a thorough diagnostic investigation. With us today to talk about encephalitis and his work on a diagnostic test for encephalitis is Dr. Mark Ellal. Mark is a specialist registrar in neurology and clinical research fellow funded by the Association of British Neurologists. He recently published a paper in the journal Clinical Medicine with the title Acute Encephalitis, Diagnosis and Management, and the link can be found in the podcast description. Good afternoon, Mark. Good afternoon. Thanks for the invitation. No, well, thank you very much for coming to talk to us about your research. Before we talk a bit more about encephalitis, I know a lot of people will have heard about meningitis as well being a disease of the brain. What's the difference between encephalitis and meningitis? Yeah, I think it's important to um, draw that distinction. Clearly, meningitis is something that's very much in the public eye uh, because there have been a few very successful um, public awareness campaigns about it. So meningitis is inflammation of the lining of the brain. Um, it's a, a very serious disease and um, it's normally caused, the serious cases are normally caused by bacteria. Uh, and it's important to give those patients antibiotics as quickly as possible, uh, which is the reason for all the um, the public awareness uh, work around it. Um, so encephalitis is is a different disease, uh, and encephalitis is inflammation of the substance of the brain itself, or what we call the brain parenchyma. Um, so it, it normally presents with uh, some sort of change in mental state, uh, whether that's drowsiness, uh, irritability, uh, or, or a frank coma, so unresponsiveness. Um, there may be other features as well, depending on which parts of the brain are affected. Um, and people may have seizures, which is a, a disorder of the electrical activity of the brain. So when you talk about the parenchyma of the brain, there's white matter and there's grey matter with, within that. Does encephalitis affect both of these divisions within the brain? It can do, yes. Um, a, lot of, a lot of different uh, forms of encephalitis will affect both grey and white matter. 
um, certain types of encephalitis or certain causes of encephalitis uh, have specific patterns within the brain which can help diagnostically. Um, so for example, herpes simplex virus encephalitis, uh, which is a common cause in the UK, um, tends to predominantly affect the temporal lobes uh, of the brain and there's various theories about why that might happen based on the way in which the virus gets into the brain. Um, and similarly, uh, there's a condition called ADEM, acute disseminated encephalomyelitis, which predominantly affects the white matter of the brain. Uh, so occasionally it can be helpful, um, uh, but uh, the damage can also be quite widespread. And in terms of autoimmune encephalitis, is there a, an anatomic pattern to that? Again, autoimmune encephalitis can affect uh, uh, various different parts of the brain. There, there is a typical pattern, uh, which is known as limbic encephalitis, where there's inflammation of the limbic system, and that's the part of the brain which predominantly deals with emotion and memory uh, and uh, is mainly in the medial temporal lobes. Um, so that pattern can, can be associated with autoimmune conditions. Earlier you mentioned the presenting signs of uh, encephalitis, but one of the first challenges when you have a patient come into the A&E and they, they've got neurological signs is discerning whether that patient is suffering from encephalitis or something that's mimicking the symptoms. How is that achieved at the moment? Yeah, so it's a very difficult problem and confusion or change in mental status of some kind is a very common reason for coming into the emergency department of a hospital. So if you imagine yourself being a doctor on a Saturday night working in an emergency department, you might have 10 people coming in with some sort of change in conscious level, um, drowsiness, irritability. And many of those people will have problems that are easily treatable or that are in, the, uh, in other parts of the body rather than the brain. They may have infections, urinary tract infections or chest infections causing them to be drowsy, uh, particularly older people. Um, they may have alcohol intoxication or have taken medications. So you're trying to identify maybe the one person out of those 10 who has a serious neurological cause for their confusion. Sometimes there might be uh, specific markers. If they've had a seizure, clearly that points to something wrong in the brain. Uh, or if they've got focal signs like weakness down one side of the body, uh, that points to a, a brain process. Um, but often you're relying on tests and uh, you can image the brain, you can uh, take pictures of the brain using a CT scan or an MRI scan. Um, but actually, in some cases of encephalitis, those images can be normal. So often you're relying on sampling uh, the cerebrospinal fluid, which is the clear fluid that bathes the brain and the spinal cord. And the way that we do this is by doing a lumbar puncture, so using a needle to take a sample of this fluid from the lower back. And that gives you a much closer um, look at what's going on in the central nervous system. So what we're looking for uh, primarily on, on that fluid, we, we measure things like the glucose and the protein, etc. But what we're really looking for is the presence of white blood cells. There are always a few white blood cells um, floating around, uh, performing a surveillance role for infections. But uh, in encephalitis, uh, you will have far more white blood cells in that fluid. So that's a real pointer to something going on. Mm. Am I right in saying that the brain is an immune privileged area? So normally the, the immune system doesn't have access to the brain, but in a disease state, it's, the, the white blood cells are present. 
So that is a, the traditional thinking, um, is that the, the brain certainly has a different immune system from the rest of the, or different function of the immune system. It's not totally immune privileged. So we know now that uh, lymphocytes and monocytes are traversing into the central nervous system and out again uh, regularly. Um, and that is it's probably part of a surveillance function. Um, so it's not completely immune privileged, but certainly um, the immune system operates differently within the central nervous system. Mm. So in autoimmune, the rules kind of don't apply anymore and it's all gone out the window. I think um, that's part of the reason why autoimmune encephalitis exists as an entity, because there is something of a breakage of what we'd call immune tolerance. So mm. uh, your immune system normally would recognise yourself proteins or antigens as yourself and others as foreign. Uh, whereas um, in, uh, in, in the central nervous system, there may be antigens that aren't frequent within the systemic immune system, which it then recognises as foreign or uh, treats as foreign, uh, which r results in some form of autoimmunity. So part of the problem is that um, the immune system isn't used to seeing these proteins because the brain is a privileged area where it doesn't generally go. Exactly. And you can see this in some of the autoimmune uh, conditions that we're dealing with here. So, for example, one of the more common uh, types of autoimmune encephalitis is called NMDA receptor antibody encephalitis. And this is an antibody reaction to a protein on the surface of neurons called the NMDA receptor. Um, in some cases, this is triggered by uh, a tumour, and quite commonly that tumour is a teratoma of the ovary. So this is a, a, a very unusual tumour where other types of tissue can develop within the tumour in the ovary. So for example, you could have uh, neurons or ner some sort of nerve cell in the ovary that is expressing an, the NMDA receptor. Um, within the context of the tumour, an immune reaction develops uh, against these, these antigens, the NMDA receptor, and then there's a cross-reaction against the receptors in the brain, which results in encephalitis. Mm. And what other classes of autoimmune encephalitis are, are common within people? Um, so the most frequently identified cause is, is NMDA receptor uh, antibody encephalitis, um, but there are other targets for these antibodies as well. Um, for example, the, the, the voltage-gated potassium channel uh, or what the components of the voltage-gated potassium channel can be targeted, which has quite a different um, clinical presentation. And uh, there are a range of other, other receptors that can be targeted as well. Um, there are also a number of uh, syndromes which result from cancers. Um, so this is what we call paraneoplastic encephalitis. Um, and for example, small cell lung cancer uh, can generate a, a type of encephalitis as well. And in terms of viral infection and encephalitis, what are the main causes of, of viral encephalitis? Well, that depends to a large degree on the patient's background. So one of the important things when you're assessing these patients is uh, to find out uh, where they're from, what their background is, where they've travelled recently, and any specific risk factors uh, or risk factors for immunosuppression. Um, but... Uh, aside from that, if you're in the UK and you're an immunocompetent person, so you've got a working immune system, the most commonly identified viral causes will be herpes simplex virus type 1, which is the virus that causes cold sores, and varicella zoster virus, which is the virus that causes chickenpox. Worldwide, 
so uh, looking at Asia, uh, Southeast Asia, South America, um, then arboviruses are, are much more important. So um, viruses that are transmitted by biting insects, and particularly in, in Southeast Asia, Japanese encephalitis virus is a very important cause. You've mentioned before that you were working with Zika virus. Is that now an emerging cause of encephalitis? Yes, yeah, so we've we've done some work in Brazil uh, with uh, when when the Zika virus epidemic was was declared uh, in 2015. Uh, we set up a case control study looking for neurological manifestations of Zika virus. Um, so the the one which first drew people's attention was Guillain-Barré syndrome, which is a disease of the peripheral nerves. But actually, uh, as we looked harder and harder, we found that these patients were also developing central nervous system disease, including encephalitis. Um, so this appears to be a, a rare complication of Zika. Um, so it's quite difficult to establish causality, but certainly um, there have been patients who've had encephalitis and have had the virus identif uh, identified by PCR in brain tissue and in CSF. So certainly there's a smoking gun there that Zika may be causing uh, encephalitis. So the diagnostic challenge within encephalitis is figuring out whether the cause is viral or autoimmune, and that's what your project is focused on. How is the differentiation between these two diseases currently done, and what, what are the problems with the approach at the moment? Well, so at the moment, the approach to these patients is, first of all, to look at the clinical features. Um, so some of the autoimmune conditions uh, will have quite typical clinical presentations, for example, NMDA, receptor antibody encephalitis, commonly presents with psychiatric features and movement disorder. But these features all really overlap, so it's very difficult to make a, a firm diagnosis on that unless they're very, very typical. Uh, so the tests that are done, first of all, um, normally viral tests are done on the cerebrospinal fluid, the CSF. And that's a PCR test, so looking for the genetic material of that virus. Um, so th these are done rapidly, normally within 48 hours, because viral encephalitis uh, has a mortality associated with it and needs to be treated urgently. In fact, it's, it's so urgent that normally we start the treatment empirically, uh, so we start it even before the test results are back, so that we don't miss those valuable hours at the beginning of the, uh, the patient's illness when, when treatment can be most effective. So after these viral tests, if they come back negative, uh, you can test for antibodies. These tests are a little bit more difficult and take a bit more time, so some of them may, may take up to two weeks to do. Um, and even when you've done all of those tests, in a substantial proportion of patients, you won't get a, a what we call an etiological diagnosis, so you won't, you won't find the actual cause. Um, and that could be up to 60% of patients, depending on how hard you look for the cause. So that's a real problem because you don't know whether you're treating an infection or an autoimmune process. Traditionally, um, patients were treated as if they had a viral infection, uh, but increasingly now, because of the increased awareness of autoimmune encephalitis, they're treated as if they had an autoimmune disease with immunosuppression. But that's a big problem if you, if you have a viral infection and you suppress the immune system, uh, that could cause big problems for the patient. So uh, that's really where my project is focused, trying to improve the diagnosis for that group. Mm -hmm. So your approach to this has, you've taken an, 
what we're now calling like an omics approach. So omics refers to microbiomics, looking at the microbiome, metabolomics, looking at uh, metabolites within a system, um, and proteomics, uh, which is what we're going to discuss now, which where you're looking at the, the proteins within a sample. So first off, um, where did you get your samples from and what kind of patients were you looking at? Encephalitis is um, a relatively uncommon disease. Um, it's not that uncommon, so it's, it's, it's slightly less common than meningitis, but it's, it's, it's uncommon enough that you have to uh, run quite a large study to recruit these patients. You can't just have one hospital and recruit quickly. So the cohort that I'm working with was recruited over, over uh, three years um, from 30 hospital sites. Um, and uh, was was part of a major observational study. Um, so, and clearly, then the samples that we needed were uh, cerebrospinal fluid samples. Um, so these are these are quite difficult samples to come by as well. Um, and uh, that was organisationally quite difficult. But we did manage to collect a good cohort of of patients. So, how are the patients in your study? divided up in, into groups? So for the purposes of the proteomic study, uh, these were divided into um, patients where they had proven viral encephalitis, so the virus was identified by PCR in the CSF. Uh, patients with proven autoimmune encephalitis, so those who had antibodies um, that we know are associated with uh, autoimmune encephalitis. And then we had a, a sort of control group which were mimics of encephalitis. So these patients didn't have encephalitis but had those other conditions that can look a bit like it. So patients with epilepsy, patients with uh, toxic causes of uh, encephalopathy or change in mental status. So when you're doing proteomics, what are you looking at within your sample? So we're doing proteomics on CSF and we're trying to identify as many proteins as we can uh, within this, within the sample, uh, which is obviously a mixture of a huge number of different things, including proteins, um, and trying to identify proteins that can help us to distinguish between uh, these three groups of uh, patients. Um, so the uh, sample, first of all, the the, the proteins are uh, broken down by trypsin, so they're separated into into peptides. Um, and then they're analysed by um, liquid chromatography, mass spectrometry. Uh, so essentially they're, they're separated uh, by chromatography and then they're ionised and they're separated in the spectrometer based on uh, mass to charge ratio. So you end up with a, a spectrum of different peaks which represent those peptides uh, within the sample. Uh, you can then use a, a database uh, of human proteins to identify uh, those proteins uh, of which those peptides are components. So uh, you you will never uh, identify all the proteins in a sample. You're always going to lose uh, some of them, um, but uh, you will get a, a large number of proteins um, and uh, you can use quality control measures uh, to uh, look at how sure you are of the presence of those different proteins as well. So for each sample, you end up with... Uh, like a barcode with peaks on the spectrometer that, that tell you that a protein or a peptide was found at that particular 
with those particular characteristics. So you know about the presence of a protein, but can you tell anything about how much there is in a sample? Uh, yes, you can. So you can. There are various approaches to doing this. Um, some approaches use a labelling technique, um, so you're altering the sample in some way in order to quantify those proteins. Um, the the method that we used was unlabeled, so you can you can ascertain a relative abundance of those proteins, which is what we need really, because we're looking at the relative abundance between these different samples in order to uh, work out which is the best biomarker for the condition. And how many proteins do you get within a sample? Is it hundreds or thousands or hundreds of thousands? It depends on a number of things. Well, first of all, what the sample is. So um, uh, CSF, uh, for example, doesn't contain as much protein as, as serum or, or, or you know, something derived from a blood sample and it also depends on, on the integrity of that sample so how it's been handled, um, how many freeze-thaw cycles it's had, how, how, how much the protein's been broken down by being repeatedly frozen and re-thawed when it's being transported and so on. Um, but uh, within CSF you, you obtain within the hundreds to a thousand proteins. So you, you end up with a huge database of hundreds or thousands of proteins within each sample and you've then got to compare them and find out which ones are different between your sample groups. So obviously you can't look at it by eye and say, well, this group is different to this group. You, you have to rely on computers to do the heavy lifting for you. Yeah. So this is a, a bit of a shift in thinking from the standard scientific experiment where you would have a hypothesis uh, and you would test a small number of, say, proteins, for example, uh, and you would verify or, or reject that hypothesis. Um, this is generating a large amount of data uh, and then using complex statistical approaches uh, to use that, that uh, data set to generate a model to categorize your samples. So it's a much more unbiased way of uh, analyzing uh, these samples. And if we touch briefly on the statistics of how you do that, is it it's all done on a computer, presumably? Yeah, so it, it needs quite a large amount of computer power to analyse because, um, I mean, within my project, I have not only the proteomics, but also uh, transcriptomic data, so data about gene expression, and also metabolomic data about the, the presence of, of small molecule metabolites in the samples. So um, the... I mean, the approach, the statistical approach is really has two elements to it. Um, the first way that you can approach uh, the analysis is in what we'd call an unsupervised way. Um, so you would allow uh, the computer program to um, identify the proteins which were responsible for the variance between samples. Um, and you would allow the program to then categorize based on that. So, for example, cluster analysis or principal components analysis would be an example of that. So if you allow the computer to do that and it categorizes your samples into the categories you want, then you're home and dry, really. Mm -hmm. And you can find you normally find a biomarker from that. Moving on from that, you can perform an, a, a supervised analysis. So this is where you tell the computer program what the categories are, which category each sample belongs to, and then it will develop a model uh, to divide to um, categorize the samples based on the proteome 
so for example, random forest analysis would be an example of this. Um, you have to be very cautious about using supervised analysis because clearly you have such a lot of data and you have a limited number of samples. There's a risk that you will find a model, but it will only hold true for your sample set. So it requires a lot of validation. Ideally, you'd validate it with an independent uh, sample set, but there are ways of validating it internally. Uh, so you use a few of the samples as a discovery set, and then you validate with the rest of them, and you can do that repeatedly. So, for example, your computer program would identify protein A and B as being really expressed or really prevalent within one of your groups but actually that's because you've only got a few samples it doesn't hold true within a wider population it's just a, like a statistical chance exactly that's the worry that's called overfitting um, so that's why the statistical workflow the, the plan of analyzing the samples has to be very has to be watertight um, and validation is really important so i know that you're still in the process of looking at your results and analyzing your data um, but what can you say about your preliminary results? Uh, yes, we're, we're in the middle of analysing uh, all of this data. I think the first thing to say is that the, the proteomics worked, which I was very pleased about. Um, so we did manage to identify a large number of proteins. So proteomics in CSF is relatively new, um, so that was, that was good. And there were a lot of proteins which had a significant difference between the different groups. Um, I think the first thing I realised is that the infectious encephalitis, so the mostly viral encephalitis, is had had quite a different proteome from the autoimmune uh, and the mimics. Um, so uh, identifying the infectious cases is quite straightforward, but I think it's going to be separating the autoimmune cases from the controls that's going to be the challenge, uh, and it may well need some of those supervised analyses that we discussed. Mm -hmm. Obviously, the end point of this project is not proteomics because we're not going to be running these complex analyses on every sample that comes into a hospital. So what is the plan with your data? Is there a practical application at the end? There is, yes. Uh, so no, we can't, well, although proteomics is, is used in some very uh, specialised cases in, in clinical laboratories, it's, it's not something that you can apply widely because of, uh, of the cost and the expertise needed uh, to deliver it. Um, so the ideal situation would be to end up with a very simple protein test, um, which could be uh, either done by uh, a test called an ELISA, which is a straightforward laboratory test that that all, all laboratories do regularly, uh, or you can even uh, use even more simple uh, bedside tests uh, where, for example, you have a, a what's called a linear flow assay, which is similar to how a pregnancy test works, where you can test it on a strip. Um, there's various uh, methods that could be used, um, but certainly if we were able to identify a biomarker, a simple protein biomarker, uh, it would be extraordinarily useful for this for this group of patients with encephalitis of unknown cause. Great. So um, I'm afraid that's all we've got time for today. But thank you very much for coming and talking about your research. And uh, good luck with the rest of your analysis. Thanks very much. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. And thank you for listening to the IGH podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, then you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or Stitcher. You can also leave reviews and comments for us there. 
If you want to know more about IGH, you can visit the Institute's website at www.liverpool.ac.uk forward slash infection dash and dash global dash health. Or you can follow us on Facebook or Twitter at IGH Liverpool. A huge thank you as well to the Microbiology Society and the Institute of Infection and Global Health who provided the funds for the recording equipment. The music is Words We Will Remember by Josh Woodward. This track and more of his work can be found on his website at www.joshwoodward.com.